Hello and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast. We're in a series of short conversations about preaching with well-known author and Bible teacher Andrew Wilson. This is conversation number two about the art of communication, where we discuss some of the tools available to us as communicators and Bible teachers. If you haven't heard episode one on preaching's purpose, what it is that we do when we preach, I'd highly recommend going back to hear that one first, since the conversations sort of build on top of one another. I should say that there are videos available on YouTube that accompany these conversations, which for this one in particular, you may find helpful since at one stage, Andrew uses a flip chart to sketch out a diagram of the sermon's journey. I'll try and explain what's happening to those of you listening on the podcast, but it's available to see if should you pop over to our YouTube channel, New Ground Churches. Okay, well, over now to Andrew as he starts by explaining why it's worth trying to communicate well in the first place. Over to Andrew. Well, I think maybe in defending why you need to do that, because I think in the first conversation, it it could almost have sounded like you don't need to worry about communicating well because you're really just sort of painting a picture to help people experience Jesus, and it doesn't almost matter whether people are learning anything or people are understanding what you're saying. And I'm definitely not saying that um, because in many ways, the only because we are mind as well as obviously body and spirit and so on, we, we need to take people mentally so you want to worship help people love the lord their god with all their mind and help them understand why these things are true because if you just simply create an emotional response without the intellectual persuasion uh, or engagement or understanding it, it is very very shallow and it's often the truth is what gives you the logs and then it's the spirit and that gives the the light and the fire but the, the flame consumes it is is involved and comprised of both and so you have to have the big logs otherwise it just goes up in smoke very quickly and won't sustain you so that's i think i would start there and then say so what i think you i, I the other thing i would say to, as a sort of introductory comment about communicating is that you're just not going to hold people's attention for 25 or 30 minutes non-stop mm-hmm. and i don't worry about that at all but what i do con- concern myself with is winning back their attention when i've lost it because I don't think anyone has already listened with single-minded focus to everything we've been saying. Maybe if this is just the start of the first and the second conversation, they might have listened to me for a minute without. But most people would tune out every few minutes, and I think that's fine. But what I don't want to do is let them stay out there without engaging for another five minutes, and they miss lots of content. So to me, a part of the the communication skill thing is actually in re-engaging people's attention on the basis that I have almost certainly lost it. And to me, that's quite freeing. Um, so that's, that's a goal obviously I, ideally what I'd like is for somebody to hear the, the word of God read and then explained every single step so they could trace the whole thing through remember it all have a wonderful encounter with Jesus go repent and sin no more that's what I do that's the dream ticket for a preacher but that never happens what actually happens is they listen to some of the text and then they zone out and then they zone back in again and then they hear the prayer or then they hear something else and then they remember the, often the very visual moments and they often remember the moments of high drama in the delivery and hopefully they remember the central point. But a significant thing, as I know we've talked about before, I think, is in a, where as best you possibly can is in practicing your craft so that you can align the most memorable bits with the most dramatic bits with the most important bits so that they're actually the same rather than getting the thing that they remember, as I've occasionally done, to be an illustration that they don't understand why it mattered, and it wasn't really a point that needed illustrating anyway, because everyone understands it. 
pet peeve, the guy who uses the moment when people are most alert right at the beginning to tell an irrelevant anecdote. I find those things very frustrating as a listener because I think you've got my attention now. You don't need to patronize me with a funny, would-be funny story, but that's, in a way, used your slot. What you need is to use your best stories to illustrate the most central point that you're trying to make and the place where that person's likely to have their, if you like, their heart most exposed to the goodness of God in what you're saying. So that's what I mean. There's the alignment of those things that I'm trying to get to. And even just in that, there's the kind of recognition and making your peace with the fact that people aren't going to have their attention held. And that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Because often people think, oh, I can't concentrate that long. I mean, but it happens in our marriages, right? I mean, I'm, I'm in conversations with Rachel where she will sometimes be talking for maybe a minute, a minute and a half. And I will, not for many seconds, but I might for five seconds just go, oh, and I'm just thinking about an email or I'm thinking about something out the window. And you think if that happens in, you know, I mean, your most intimate relationships, it's bound to happen with a guy on a stage, of course it is. Don't worry about it. I mean, it's a brave thing to admit in public. <laughs> you never I would never. Exactly. Okay, so talk to us then about how you then approach those high moments, dramatic moments, with trying to create. What yeah. are some of the tools and techniques? Well, so something, I, I, can I draw it? Yes. Okay, so one of the things I like to think about is like the sort of, is to, I do it like a graph. I've often done this where I do like a graph. Okay, so here Andrew draws a graph with an X and a Y axis. With the X axis, the horizontal bottom axis referring to time, the length of time through the sermon, and the Y axis referring to the energy levels. Energy over time. Okay, so this is going to look like a really kind of wacky thing to do, but bear with me. Um, so this is the length of, so let's say you've got 30 minutes, right? So that's like this. And this is to do with this sort of the, 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 the energy of the amount of, um, it's going to sound completely unbiblical and in many ways, none of this is in the, in the Bible, although I do think when you analyze biblical sermons in this way, Peter and Acts 2, you will see a bunch of this going on as well, but that's not why I'm, I'm not saying it's proved in scripture or anything. But I think what you're trying to do is, let's say you do a three-point sermon, and I generally, I generally do, I think three is, as we know, it's two has established the pattern, the third one breaks it, uh, Good Samaritan, lost son, you know, many, many of Jesus's parables are in those groups of three. Um, and I think there's a lot of wisdom to that. That's the most memorable way of telling something. But what I think I'm then trying to do is I'm trying to shape the sermon. Imagine this as almost like as a piece of music. So often you want, you have a, a big start. And a big start means that there's a lot of energy at the start of the sermon, right where our graph or our chart of time begins. There's an X close to the top of the highest energy point right at the beginning of the sermon. Quite quickly settle in. So a bit of piece of music might sort of dun dum dun dum 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 and then as if we're Beethoven fans or whatever. And it's, so you start with something, but you want to arrest people's attention early if you can, and you want to make the most of it. But actually, you'll probably at an energy level settle into something fairly, you know, more steady as you're reading. Scripture. The big start then dips down on the energy scale uh, whilst the reading of scripture takes place. And then, as he said, you kind of settle into a lower level of energy and engagement at this point. By the way, I could come back to this, but reading scripture well is such an indispensable thing. And I'm not perfect at it, but you want to read the scriptures if people almost don't need the sermon to understand what you've said. Best you can. Occasionally that's not possible because it's such an obscure text, but you want to tell a story and so on. But anyway, you've got here. And what I want to do is think about the, the sermon as if it's a piece of music. Um, and so I wanted to build, and then I probably wanted to build again. And then come down. So here he's drawing three waves, with the peak of the waves representing the, the points or the movements through the sermon, um, going down from the introduction, up and down and up until it crescendos at the highest point of the message. 
Again, this is time over energy, with the peaks of the wave referring to the energy levels in the room. So the crescendo, the highest point, the energy and engagement comes at the end of the sermon. Come down, and then I want to build it. I want it to peak, the high point of the sermon to be not at the end, but nearly at the end. And then I want it to come down and settle and resolve, so that people, by the time people do what they do next, pray, sing. Have coffee, who knows? Depends on the shape of your... Come to communion. Depends on your liturgy, but that people have actually resolved. If you think about a movie, this is often what happens. You know, a James Bond film, you get your opening sequence, then it goes into the music, then he ends up faffing around in Whitehall, going in and out of oak-panelled rooms, talking to M, and then there's a, a, some sort of dramatic encounter, some car chase or something, and then it dips, and then there's, oh, we've got to figure out what's happened here, James. Oh, I don't know. And then it builds again, and maybe he goes to another exotic location and does something dramatic, and then it dips again, and then the big shootout or the whatever is the, now I'm inside this massive ship or space station or evil lair belonging to Remy Malik or whatever it is and that's where the big thing happens and that might be sustained of course across two or three hours um, but that's the high point but then of course it doesn't end then you don't leave on the climax that's what people who use the aeroplane analogy often recall is like you know you need to land the plane you need to just not fall out of the sky and then you actually you do generally have a period of settling and sometimes people use this bit here for application or um, for just sort of pastoral comment to try and provide a bit of sort of, look, I know we've had, you know, we've realized this, but this is what we're now going to do, or let's pray, or whatever it may be. And so I think that's just, if you're communicating for 30 minutes on anything, I think if you listen to Churchill speak, I think if you read Peter preaching in Acts 2, whatever, you might have something like this, big thing here, and then climactic. So far, so unbiblical, right? Nothing particularly scriptural as such about it. But what I think that the trick is to align these three moments. These three moments being the three points or the three peaks in each of the three waves across the time and energy graph. With perhaps your three points and certainly with a progressive understanding of the gospel and the place where you want people to, the thing you want people to understand in the text. So you, you, have your, you, you start with something that might be quite, hopefully quite well shaped. So you're going to work hard at getting that bit right. That bit right being the introduction, the main point. And you're going to work progressively hardest at getting that right, that right and that right. So that right, that right and that right refers to the three movements through the sermon towards the ultimate crescendo that you want to finish on you this bit here becomes the really crucial moment in the sermon that's the crescendo the high point in revelation understanding of the gospel the thing you really want people to go home with because that's the bit where you really hope people will go home and they will remember that and as i said before what you're trying to do is you're trying to match the importance of the content with the level of the energy or the and again i sound so ah but you understand what i mean but the sort of intensity of what you're saying with the clarity or power of the illustration or the story or whatever you're using to make that point sticky, to use the word you, you quoted earlier. And I think if you can combine all three of those, this is the bit that you really want the church to be, I got that bit. That's the final moment in the sermon, and then it refers to the other moments or points in the sermon building up to that. I may have remembered that. Hopefully I remembered that and that as well. Hopefully I know what I'm supposed to do now. It's brilliant. But if you've only got two or three minutes where you've really nailed it, you want it to be here. The third moment, the high point of engagement and attentiveness in the room, right at the end. Is if you, if you got it here... The beginning. You people remember that that's often where you're stating the problem, for instance. Hey, we've read this passage. This word's really confusing. Why on earth would anyone... Why did Rehoboam need to do that? What, where are we in the story? 
And obviously that's great if people remember that. But if they get that and they don't get this. He's saying if they get that, if they understand the beginning and the, the Bible passage, but they don't understand or travel with you or stay attentive for the crescendo. Then they've not really understood what, at least for you, as you're studying and praying over the word, you think is the central thing God wants to say to the people through the text. And so you're trying to align your illustration with your content, with your, and I've said energy or, or intensity or whatever it might be. And I don't know if people could read that, but that's what I've written up there. And you're trying to get all three of those to come together in the right place. And so I tend to conceptualize preaching a bit like that and then say, so you've got to work really hard, particularly at the illustrations of these three and particularly of this point. Um, and if you think about it like that and then realize, yeah, you ain't got to land it there. That, to me, it's just slightly better than the, the, the other image people often use is the airplane. But to me, the airplane is, is basically takeoff, cruising, landing. And I think that can be helpful for this and helpful for that, but I don't actually think it's how preachers work, because I don't think you start at ground level. You start with a lot of attention, actually, and I think it's worth knowing that and saying you don't have to gradually build and then gradually land. I think you can often, it, I think this might be a slightly better framing of the issue, but that sounds, that's maybe an arrogant thing to say, because a lot of people do talk like this. I just don't want this to be flat. I, I want it to be more bummer. I mean, the, the aeroplane one's helpful because it, it's got a, an easy language to tell the congregation where we're at yeah you know, we're coming into land yes. which brackets it's okay i'm nearly yeah. finished if, yes. I, if you're not interested yeah oh and i think and i think if you're communicating to the church that's fine but i think i was taught to preach like this as well and i, I just think this is slightly more listener attention is, is, is a slightly better way of doing it again if you've only got a five minute message that's you don't need to think that way about the idea but i think assuming most of us are talking about more a long form monologue in many ways it's even more important if that's 60 or even longer um, because the dynamics are more complex but this is assuming something between a 25 and a 40 minute message which I guess most listeners would, would be willing yeah, to do. Yeah that's really helpful. You mentioned when you when you were talking about what happens after the introduction that down yeah. the bottom of the uh, energy curve yeah. you're establishing the problem and if you almost resolve it too quickly you, you know you give people the high point then and you know whatever but in, in using that language of the problem is that often what how you think as well I want to establish a problem or a question that needs resolving. I want to create some dissonance or yes. some level of intrigue. Yeah, I do. I think in terms of, if, again, if you think about that as a movie or a novel or a piece of music or most things that are trying to hold our attention, something like that will happen. There'll be a complication. There'll be a, a tension of some sort. Now, I'm not doing that for the sake of it. I don't want to introduce a problem if it's not there in the text. But my experience is that reading an ancient Near Eastern book in a 21st century city, town, village creates all sorts of dissonances as it is. Like there are almost in any time somebody just gets up, reads a passage and says, thus says the Lord. Somebody in the congregation, and probably a good many, will either be saying, well, I don't understand why that's true, or I don't understand why that matters, or I don't understand why that's good. Like I can see even maybe it is true, but it sounds like bad news or it sounds morally difficult or how on earth would I talk to my neighbor about that or whatever. So almost, I mean, even as soon as you say, this is a passage that is in some way about God working miracles in and through his people, Israel, you're like, wow, well, that seems problematic to a lot of modern people before you start. So I don't very often have to look hard for a problem. Sometimes I do, uh, and I find that's particularly true with stories that are really, really familiar. So on Sunday, I was preaching on the Christmas story, and I think there, because it's so over-familiar, and everyone in our culture, even if they don't believe a word of it, knows roughly, they've done it in nativity, whatever, then I think finding a way of making, seeing an issue in the story that they hadn't noticed 
is often important at just engaging them, because otherwise, oh, I know this. So there are times to introduce a problem, but most of the time, the problem, just as soon as you've read the Bible and said, this is the word of God, everyone's like, that is a problem, or at least somewhere I can see why that's an issue. And that's without getting to all the passages, and there are many, many of these, where there is an obvious thing that people simply don't understand. Like, I don't know what that word means. I don't know where that place is. I don't understand why on earth is the donkey doing that? You know, there's many of those as well. So there's almost always plenty of problems to work with. The question is not, can you find one? It's, how are you going to knock several of them on the head quickly so you can focus on the main one? Mm, that's really helpful. And I think even just acknowledging the, the tension or the problems with the passage, it reassures people, like, I'm a human too. Yeah. I don't live in this ivory tower. This causes me... And it, it kind of exposes yeah. the issue. And then you're saying, now I really want to show you how this, why this is good news for you. Yeah. But in this, this approach, I really I like this kind of just... Uh, visual way of thinking about sermons but even in the way that you talked about it relating it to like a, a film you're thinking in terms of narrative and so sometimes people talk about yeah. narrative preaching as though you need lots of stories or it needs to be one big story but in the way that you're conceptualizing it yeah. it seems to be in your mind at least this is a story the whole thing is that well was that no, not the right way of thinking about it and I was making and I'm really glad that you've attributed <laughs> to me <laughs> um I, well, in a sense, I think that, yes, the, the analogy with film, music, so it, it's, and, and novels or whatever, I think, is, I think is a good one. I haven't thought about narrative preaching in that way, that's true. Um, I think that the introduction, complication, resolution, shape is just how you, it's how we are doing this conversation. Like, you are saying, hey, it's nice to be back with this. Now, can you just give me, I'm, I know you throw me a problem, and I'm going, here's a resolution. So we do that all the time. And, and even we might, for all I know, be doing a three, three or four part version of a conversation. So I think this is intuitively how human beings communicate. So I, I, I don't claim any sort of grand brand or label for it. But yes, I don't think that in order to take people on a, on a plausible story with a beginning, middle, and an end. I don't think you have to tell lots of stories, you know, plural, to pepper through the... I mean, to be honest, stories, as long as they are good and relevant and compelling, I use as many as you, know, as many as you can, because people love stories, and everyone learns by them, and the less naturally literary you are, the more the story will matter. Mm. And actually, strangely, the, the, the more often very educated people say, I'm quite happy with points. But the more people are used to conversation rather than just seeing things written down the more they want the story and that's true across different cultures so stories are wonderful but I don't think that's the same as saying I need to now let me tell you about the uh, the other day I was walking down the street and I thought that they don't have to you don't have to do that every few minutes to keep people engaged I I, I don't I, I you're right that I am saying that I think the whole message should have a shape Stories are very important, and most of the Bible is taken up of stories. Um, so you're always going to have stories in any message worth its salt. Um, but I don't think you need to sort of pepper them. Oh, salt and pepper. I like, it's, weird. it's the way the way brain works like that. Um, I don't think you have to sprinkle them throughout the, the message in order to keep people engaged. Mm, that's good. But I, I mean, I think, like you said, you can have lots in there. Um, and, and sometimes the smaller or shorter the stories, the better. Like I often think metaphors and similes are basically small stories yeah. that instantly, they add some colour to your brain and you're with them. So even if you can just use anything like that, it, it helps. Yes. But, I, but I think this problem approach, the problem approach of identifying the, the felt need, or we might say, is a way of inviting the congregation to inhabit the world of this issue, yeah. which is a story, because they're now seeing themselves inside inside the text and inside the question, which is really helpful. And I also, visual illustrations to me 
are often, I, I'm, I basically, I found I'm better at doing visual illustrations than I am at telling stories. I just haven't li lived that interesting a life. <laughs> I feel like, and, and I've got plenty of stories which have helped land some points, but I genuinely, you throw, again, 1 Kings 14 at me, and I'm going, I don't know that any story that's happened to me is remotely like what's happening in this passage. And so I found that visual illustrations often work better for me, and what I like about them is that they can, like an object lesson, like you know, picking up a thing, is that they can engage the visual as well as the oral part of the brain. So people are seeing something, and they, you, all, you notice it as a preacher. You, put, you hold something up and say, just look at this. Even if it's a very everyday object, pretty much everyone in the room will tune in, even the children, because they're interested to know what's gonna, how it's going to develop. And even, a good, even, a, even my stories don't very often get the same level of engagement. So I tend to quite like visual illustrations and uh, yeah, we, I know. Well, I think the part of the, the heart behind that is you've alluded to already. When you, you talk about as preachers, we're trying to serve people. Yeah. So actually, you know your congregation, you know the people in the room. You know, you mentioned children being interested. If you're trying to serve people well, you're communicating in a way that's going to help them inhabit the world that you're trying to talk about. And I think that's a compassionate, yeah, servant-hearted way of communicating to people, rather than saying, right. This is what we do, and you know, because there is sometimes in some schools there's a, a solemnity which is good, but it elevates the spoken word as the thing, and it needs to be purist, and we need to all kind of have this. I don't know. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, it, I think it, it can be. It, it can assume. It can expect more of the listener than I think is always reasonable to expect. And I do think there's cultural variables there. Personally, I think I've I've been in some cultures, particularly in North America, where the expectation of theological content is just higher than it is here. People want more what we might call meat in a sermon, whereas in, in London or Seaford or Eastbourne or whatever, I do that, and I, I feel like, yeah, some people will love it. Most people go, yeah, there's just too much there. And, and so that, that barometer varies from country to country. And there'd be many countries where if I spoke like I do in London, you'd, they'd go, what on earth are you doing? That's way over the heads of many of the people listening to you because you're just doing it like a Western white guy and that's not helping either. So you have to know your setting. Um, but yes, that's the goal. That's what contextualization is, isn't it? It's trying to, I'm trying to realize this text just doesn't fall out of nowhere. It's in its world and you're in your world and I'm going to try and help you get why the text speaks to you in your situation without compromising its authority or, you know, presuming on your attention. I mean, I know from listening to you as well, you, you have this approach, but you're, you're quite happy to use, like you said, illustrations, but then you've also, you talk about making your points sticky with, you know, memorable phrases um, and tools and tricks like that, which you, you seem happy to learn, you know, from people who do TED Talks, uh, masters in communication, holding attention, you'll see, which is wonderful, you're kind of willing to, in the importance of leaning into those tools as much as you can, but trying to make sure that they serve the point that you're trying to make in service of the gospel rather than just in service of an emotional reaction or, you yes. know, a good feeling in the moment, which I, I really appreciate and can take all of that. And what's lovely from this is that this is, you know, you're putting this in a way that you think, People can learn this. This isn't a... The dark arts. You know? <laughs> yeah. but the, the interaction between gift and skill. Like, yes. how, how, to what extent do you think, well, you're just gifted. Like, you're able to communicate at a level that very few people I know can, but you also have done a lot of work and reading and thinking about this. So what, how do you think about the interaction between gift and skill? Yeah, so this is all, <laughs> this is dangerous when someone says, you're so good at communicating, then the next thing you say is going to sound completely incoherent. Um, so I, I, I've got a, a very um, strong theology of gift. I, I, I think that God just, no, we shouldn't be worried about the fact that God has given more gifts in some areas to, to people than others, that, that lots of the parables are about 
God giving certain things to some people and certain other things to others, and some people get given more than others. That happens multiple times. I, so I wouldn't be concerned about that, and you know, so long as you're not envious of that which has been given to someone else, you're fine. You just celebrate it and say, I'm not accountable for all the things they're accountable for either. Praise God. But to the extent that I have been given a gift to do this, and if you are doing this in a church, within that body, you have got that responsibility. You might think, oh, I'm not as good an eye as the eye down the road. But in this community, I'm one of the eyes. So this is my job today, even if I don't think I'm amazing at it. Um, there are lots of things you can do to hone your craft, which is why we're doing this. And also, I think, why we started with what preaching is. Because I think if, so if you start with all of this, you go, it's all about the skills. You say, no, no, no. Some of this is simply that you've got to trust that the, that the Lord who speaks through his word, by his spirit, is going to bring life-changing people. And that's where the Lutheran view of preaching comes in. Ultimately, that's what Luther said. He said. I was just having a beer with my friends, and the word did its work and changed Europe. And you think, God does that. That's, so our confidence is there. So let's lean into gift heavily and say, God, is, this is a grace thing. But there are multiple things we can do to sharpen and help our, our craft. And obviously, this is on the delivery side. I think we could also talk about the preparation, reading, all that sort of stuff as well. So I think you want to do, you want to steward your gift best you can. And you do that by enhancing your skills. And you do that by hard work. And you, you read a lot and you practice a lot and you talk to a lot of people and you work hard at things and then you cross it out and you go, that didn't work. And then you try and preach it like that. And then someone comes up and says, you just, this my very first message in Eastbourne. Like, never say that again. Like, that was <laughs> some feedback I got. Um, and if you were there, which one or two of you may have been, you'll know. Um, and so, and you do it and by making mistakes and then go, oh man, that's, no, that's not right. But over time, by working at your craft, you can hopefully help other people engage in God more. And so I genuinely think now that someone listening to me at 45, which I nearly am, will get more, hopefully, encounter God through the word more than they would have when I was 25. And I feel like that's a, that's appropriate to the use of gift, and it would be true of worship leaders and true of, of course, natural gifts too, bankers and athletes and who knows what. So. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's the Apostle Paul's, I worked harder than any of you, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God on me. Wonderful. Well, we're going to talk in our next conversation. Nah, what's that? Is that? We're going to talk in our next conversation about how to prepare a sermon. Well, thanks so much for being with us today. I hope you found it helpful. Uh, what did you find helpful from what Andrew had to say? For me, I think it was the mapping of the sermon as a series of movements with allowances made for interest peaks and dips. We're trying to move people, aren't we, to bring them with us on a stream of thought and we're wanting to lead people to ultimately a point of encounter. And that isn't something that people are ready right from the off. It requires time to build. In other conversations I've had with him about this idea, he used to talk about this concept of a diver discovering a pearl or a piece of treasure on the ocean floor. And then rather than rushing straight to the surface and suffering the bends, the diver has to ascend slowly and deliberately until eventually he's on the surface and everyone's able to see the treasure that he's uncovered. I've always found that helpful in my preparation, not to rush someone with a piece of revelation, but to lead them to it, to go slowly and carefully and yet deliberately, always with the intention of leading people to that point of response and encounter. Well, that's it for today. We'll be back in a fortnight's time, as I said, for the final instalment on Preaching with Andrew, where we'll be considering how it is that we actually go about preparing a sermon. I'll see you then. <laughs>